Hello, welcome to Slim Radio News. I'm Nora and I'm here with Julia again. Hi, good morning. How are you doing, Julia? I'm good. We have so much to cover that I just want to jump into it. Yes, we have so much. So we're going to be starting off with what's going on in Mozambique. Julia herself has lived in Mozambique, so she's going to be guiding me with this. And I have so many questions. Yeah, so, and there's so much background. What is going on? Like, can you first start off with like maybe a simple few sentences to sum up what's happening? Yes. So in Mozambique right now, there's an ISIS insurgency in the north. And this is an ISIS-affiliated group. They're called Al-Shabaab. Okay. But these are different from the Somalian Al-Shabaab. They just call themselves that. All right. So just think ISIS-affiliated. Okay, okay, yeah. And they have been carrying out really horrific mass killings of civilians in Cabo Delgado, which is a province in Mozambique. Okay, and is Mozambique mostly Muslim? Or what's the story with that? No, no. So actually, only 18% of the population is Muslim in Mozambique. But Cabo Delgado is one of the only few provinces that have a Muslim majority. Oh, okay. That's why all of this is happening there. Maputo, the capital, is actually towards the bottom of Mozambique. Yeah. So there's nothing really going on there. But it's at the top northern regions where this conflict is just getting really out of hand. And there are updates every day. So... Maybe I can get into the background yeah, of a little bit. So where did it come from? Like, have they only started like these rapid killings in the last week or so? No. So actually, this conflict started back in 2017 and it's been just escalating ever since. Yeah. And it fluctuates. So there are times where there's peace and nothing is really going on. But back in March of this year, things really picked up and they got really, really bloody. And it's gotten national headlines, I'm sure. You've read about it. Yeah, I've seen stuff about people being beheaded. Yes, yes. So I'll go into that. But just like some background info about Mozambique first. Um, it's a country that not a lot of people, I don't think, pay attention to. Mm-hmm. Um, it's in southern Africa. And it's on the coast of the Indian Ocean. So it's a really popular tourist destination. Yeah, I'd they say it's like, gorgeous. Yeah. It's gorgeous. It's like pristine beaches. It's really, really nice. However, they have an extensive Portuguese colonial history. Mm-hmm. So their official language today is Portuguese. And 70% of their population live in poverty. Seven, 70? Seven zero, yeah. Oh my God, okay. And this is 21 million people living in poverty. They don't have access to clean water, food problems, economic. Just, it's really, really tragic. And there's a huge number of, of just s- corruption cases going on in the country. So there's a huge economic gap. And it's just a really struggling area at the moment. okay. So this is a really fragile place and somewhere where ISIS could get a stronghold because of its fragile nature. Because at the of the vulnerability, it's really. It's so vulnerable, yeah. Okay. So this province is actually the poorest and it has the highest unemployment rates and there's a lot of corruption going on in the region and it's super rich in natural resources. Yeah, that's what I kind of don't understand is that the country itself is super well, it's like a, like a lot of African countries, super rich in natural resources, yet so many are living in poverty. And do you think there's some kind of link between that disparity and this new group? This terrorist organization? Yeah. Yes, actually, that's the main link that a lot of experts are saying that this is why this is happening. Yeah. It's because there are devastating social, economic and political problems. The, there's so much corruption within mm-hmm. the government, within the police. And so these... These civilians are getting fed up with this, with the issues that are going on in this country, and they're joining these groups. So basically, they feel like 
it's pointless. There's nothing they can do. So right. is it mostly like young people that they're recruiting and yeah, young and, men, yeah, young okay, men and children. Is, yeah. And so what happened in starting in March? Yeah. Hundreds of militants ambushed this town called Palma and they've been brutally killing dozens of people. So this is including locals, but also tourists and foreign nationals. And so again, like I said earlier, this started in 2017, but an ambush of this severity and it was so thought out. They really came from all sides. They had extensive, like, uh, what's the word? Uh, um, weapons? Weapons. I yeah. blanked on that. And they had weapons, and they just had a lot of money in into this ambush. And so since 2017, 2,500 people have been killed. What? Yeah. And 700,000 have fled their, the area. Christ, I, I feel like I've heard so little about that. Do you have any idea where they're getting the money from? Yeah. To fund the weapons? Oh my God, it's actually, I was shocked to read this. So they fund themselves through heroin, contraband, and the ivory trade. The ivory trade? The ivory trade, yeah. Oh, ivory from elephants, yep. right? Yep. Elephant tusks. Elephant tusks that are being exported. And so they get their money through drugs and just really illegal activities, obviously. Um, and has there been any, do they have some type of spokesperson? Like what, what's the message that they're putting out exactly? So actually they differ from a lot of these Islamic militant groups because they don't really have a manifesto. They don't really have a, an agenda. They mm -hmm. haven't at least proclaimed it. They haven't announced what, why they're doing this. Experts are saying that they are carrying out these killings to sow chaos and to sort of show how ineffective the government is at, is at protecting its own people. So these many of these militants are actually trained by ex-policemen who uh, have grudges against the government. Right. So, but what does that really have to do with ISIS then? So they, these are people that come from the region. Yeah. And a lot of experts are saying that they're actually using like these Islamic movements to cover for just trying to sow chaos because they do believe that Islam in Mozambique has become corrupt mm -hmm. and they want Sharia law to, to take over. They don't recognize the government. So there is that aspect to it, but it also is a lot about the economic issues and, you know, the political okay, problems. Right, right. So it's, it's a different than from the typical stories that we would see with like ISIS terrorist right. groups. Like it's a okay. mix. It's a combination. Okay. So it's really complicated. Yeah. So do you think then the people trying to fix this problem, they more so need to look at the, the corruption that's going on in Mozambique rather than just, I think both the Islamic part. Yeah. Okay. I definitely think both, but the economic issues and the political corruption has to be addressed because it is ridiculous. Like you will see people in the government, you know, living extremely lavish lives while there are mothers breastfeeding their children on the street. Mm -hmm. When I lived in Mozambique back in 2009-2010, yeah. a lot of the criminal activity in Maputo was a result of corruption. So, for example, criminals would get AK-47s from the police <laughs> and carry out these crimes. Now, isn't that crazy? So it was all connected. It's all connected. It's all connected. And, of course, then among the local people, there's a, this... A sense of mistrust, of course. Absolutely. And I guess if you have that mistrust and you're some poor 15-year-old, like you're much more vulnerable to be almost, you know, like brainwashed by these yeah. militant groups. Or out of fear as well. You know, if you don't join them, you get killed, you get beheaded. Uh, yeah, of, of course. And that's what they've been doing. They've beheading, been beheading, beheading children. People. Children. So actually there are reports recently, uh, what's been happening since March, children as young as 11 years old are being beheaded 
in Cabo Delgado in Palma. And they're beheading civilians, shooting indiscriminately into just crowds of people, going into streets and killing people in their homes. Just really, really brutal stuff. And it's horrible. It's really horrible. And and initially they started off with killing civilians, but then it got into foreign expats. So actually in Palma, the reason this is all probably happening there is because again, like we said earlier, it's rich in natural resources and Back in 2011, they found natural gas reserves. So total, the French-owned oil and gas company invested 20 billion euros into a natural gas project there, rather than, you know, it, it spreading to the people, the wealth and everything. Oh, okay, okay. So a lot of people are frustrated, and so hundreds of staff from Total had to be evacuated from the plant over there. Mm-hmm. And this assault came hours after the government announced that Total was reinvesting their money into this project because a couple years ago, they also announced this, but they actually halted all plans to start investing in this natural gas project because of fears of insurgency. Right, okay. So it actually happened. So it actually happened. It and actually, then yeah. it have other like expats being killed then? Yeah, yeah, so there was a hotel in Palma called the Hotel Amarula, and it acted as a safe haven for nearly 200 international contractors, local civil servants, and again, like foreign expats and tourists. They sought refuge in this hotel. And after a while, resources ran low. Mm -hmm. So they ran out of food, and they were starting to run low on water, so they decided to get a bunch of convoys and try to make a run for it, essentially, try to get out of this hotel. And as they were leaving in the middle of the night, they were ambushed almost immediately by these militants. They were shooting at the cars. Uh, I think around half of the cars made it to safety. Okay. And a South African and a UK national were killed in this shootout. And a couple of days later, a, a Mozambican local found 13 foreigners beheaded outside that hotel, tied up to a tree and basically had their had their heads cut off wow. and I, oh my god i can't believe that yeah and it from is there any sense of any type of solution like has anyone proposed some type of solution so right now leaders of the south african nations are meeting to sort of discuss what 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 to do about this because this is not like a one-time occurrence this is just going to keep happening especially with all that money that's being invested in the region mm-hmm. And so the Mozambican government actually took a few days to even acknowledge that something was going on in Palma, which I think is just so crazy. And South African helicopters actually went in and tried to rescue. These were private helicopters, but they tried to rescue some people from the hotels. And of course, all the people from the total plant were evacuated. But the locals had to just make a run for it and go to neighboring towns to try and seek refuge. But this is also a problem because these other towns are struggling economically, Mm COVID-19. So it is really becoming a huge, huge, huge humanitarian crisis. And a lot of the locals are saying that no international intervention is taking place. No, it doesn't seem to be It doesn't seem to be. It's it's just so political. And for what? This is a situation where I really believe that any and all international intervention should be occurring. However, the U.S. is training some Mozambican military to try and combat this. And I believe another country is doing that as well. Uh, Portugal actually oh, said that they right. would because that makes sense. Yeah. colonial history. That is nuts. Oh my God. So it's just been a pretty... 
And Bloody the fact that days. it's been going on for so long, right? Really, it's like it's only guess it's coming to like a the eruption now. Yeah, right. Yeah, it's and all boiling up. And oh it, my god, that's horrific. Right. God. Well, moving on from that, we actually have a sim not similar enough, but <laughs> in another part of the yeah. world. Um, I don't know if you've seen this. Actually, I'd be interested to see how much you know about it. But um, in Belfast, in Northern Ireland, for the past eight nights, I think. Um, there has been rioting on the streets. Have you seen pictures of that? Okay, I'm going to be honest with you. <laughs> Go ahead. I know <laughs> nothing about what's going on in Ireland and <laughs> even like the history about it. So can you just tell me? Because I really don't even know. Of course. The no, background. No, it's fine. It's actually interesting. So many people outside of Ireland and the UK. I mean, to be honest, some people in the UK even <laughs> know like nothing about Northern Ireland. Yeah. So, okay, I'll start from the very beginning. I mean, to be honest, if I was were to go from the beginning, we would have to go back to fucking like King Henry VIII. <laughs> I don't think we have time for yeah, that. Yeah, we don't have time for that. That's like a whole like two hour long podcast episode. So um, to begin with, you might wonder like, well, what even is Northern Ireland? Like, right. Isn't there it's just Ireland? Just, it's just Ireland. But that's the thing. So you do know, right, that Ireland was colonized by the British yes. about 800 years ago. And it got its independence in 1922. But the thing is, the northern part of Ireland, so the um, ooh, the part that's called Ulster, so it's basically in the northeast, okay. that had more plantations. So it had more people of British descent living there so it had more people that identified as british rather than irish and they were protestant i see that's the important part they're protestant which generally speaking meant that they saw themselves as british whereas the catholics were the natives who saw themselves as irish okay so in ireland the predominant religion is catholicism, catholicism. yeah and when ireland was colonized it was the protestants that were coming over so I basically see. if you're a protestant and you're from ireland it means that more than likely your ancestors were sent over as planters, as the colonizers, I guess. Okay. Yeah. So when Ireland got independence in 1922, the people in the North were saying, well, hey, we're not Irish, we're British. So therefore the UK held on to Northern Ireland. All so right. it's funny. So I live like where I'm from, I'm from North Dublin. I live only an hour away from Northern Ireland. And I mean, at the moment, like it's grand, like you just like you can just drive past and there's nothing, there's no border. But this is like where it gets complicated. <laughs> so have you ever heard of the Troubles? No. So basically there was a war that went on from the 60s to the 90s in Northern Ireland. And I think it's so funny that it's just called the Troubles. The tr the, <laughs> it's so like Let's Irish. That about like, it. oh, like, it's grand, it's grand. Yeah. But it was the sectarian <laughs> war where thousands of people died. And the reasoning behind that war was at the time in, say, the 60s and 70s, the Catholic minority who saw themselves as Irish were being treated very badly. Like it was an, it was a civil rights problem, basically, like they weren't giving the same rights in terms of voting, in terms of housing. So in they terms were second class education, second class citizens. Exactly. And the whole community was and it still is divided. Like they have these things that they call peace walls, even though it's not very peaceful, that separates Catholic communities from Protestant communities. They went to different schools. Sometimes they kind of still do. They just, w they wouldn't mix together basically. And there was always this huge resentment between both communities. And is that still present today? Do you see that? Yeah. So the thing is, 
the troubles ended then in the 90s like I'll continue into that uh, with the Good Friday Agreement have you heard of that it's actually interesting as we record this it's the 23 year anniversary of the Good Friday Agreement and the Good Friday Agreement at the time was seen as this like great feat because it was bringing peace to two communities that were like like a serious level of hatred and who mediated that yeah, so um, it was mediated actually by Bill Clinton was brought in as the type of mediator because I guess See. there has always been big ties between the UK and America and also Ireland and America mm. because of all the Irish Americans. So he was brought in as the mediator between these two sides. And what you have to realize is that during the Troubles, um, I mean, I'm putting this as generally as I can, but on the Catholic side, you had the IRA, which is the Irish Republican Army, which is a paramilitary group. And they're a terrorist association. Like they were a terrorist association. They they set cars on fire. They were responsible for killing Lord Mountbatten from the royal family. See, again, I'm yeah, almost so. embarrassed. Because <laughs> no, no, it's okay. It's okay. It's okay. Yeah. And then on the other side, the loyalists, so the British side, they right. have the UVF, Ulster Volunteer Force. And they're also a terrorist par- paramilitary organization. Anyways, so <laughs> in the 90s, Good Friday Agreement comes along. It's amazing. It was like celebrated all over the world because they were like, oh my God, finally, like these two communities are, it, it wasn't like a complete end to the hatred and the uh, division, but it was more so they, they set out an agreement that said, if someone is living in Northern Ireland, they have a right to be identified as British or Irish. I see. It basically, it said there cannot exist a hard border between Northern Ireland and Southern Ireland. Okay. And that's a really big part of it is the border. So fast forward to 2020 and 2021. Now we have Brexit. Okay, so keep in mind, a big part of the Good Friday Agreement is there cannot be a border on the island of Ireland. And there there wasn't one. There isn't one. During the Troubles, there was a border in the sense that there were military men basically at the border, which of course was such a big cause of tension. Mm -hmm. And... That was a big part of the Good Friday Agreement, you know, no border. <laughs> the problem with Brexit is now you have a part, okay, you have an island where one part of it is not technically in the EU, but the rest is. Okay, <laughs> so that's the issue. And then this is why Brexit basically took so long was because they couldn't figure out what to do with the border. Because if you have goods coming from the EU right. into the Republic, you're supposed to check them. But of course like people on both sides were saying no we can't do that we can't put a border on the island of ireland because if you put a border on the island of ireland one of the paramilitary groups is going to come along blow it up if you put soldiers on the border people are going to shoot the soldiers and then you're just going to erupt in a war that people like worked so hard to to stop so after the good friday (laughs) agreement the the border was dissolved yeah dissolved so there's nothing like you could just drive past okay the only difference was in the signs really Right, so like in the EU. Yeah, 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 in the EU, basically. (laughs) And if we go on to today, the people that are in the streets rioting is uh, mostly loyalists. So this is people that come from Protestant families who would identify as British and see themselves as British. Now, (laughs) the reason why they're upset is because the most recent um, agreement in the Brexit negotiations has been to put the Irish border in the sea. So in the Irish Sea between Great Britain and Ireland, that's where the border is. <laughs> I know, it gets like more and more abstract. Yeah, you can't see my face right now, but <laughs> okay. I'm really calculating. So they wanted to put it in the sea. Yeah, so it's like an and abstract notion. Because okay, okay. The thing is, that's good for, say, 
Irish people, quote unquote, so people from Catholic families who see themselves as Irish because they're saying, oh, this is good. Like in a way that probably makes them feel more connected to the Republic of Ireland because mm. they are one, they are an island. And, you know, they obviously, they don't want a border on the island. Like, like a physical border. Yeah, that was such a big part of the talks. Like even Boris Johnson was like, at one point, no, we can't do that. But then also during the talks, Boris Johnson was like, there's no way that we are putting the border in the Irish Sea because that makes the um, <laughs> the loyalists feel isolated. Because if the border's in the Irish Sea, then they're thinking, wait, hold on a second. We're not Irish. Why are you putting us with the rest of these Irish people? So the loyalists, the British people that are living in Northern Ireland, they feel isolated and cut off from the rest of the United Kingdom. Oh. They feel like they're not being listened to. So I have a question. What <laughs> yeah. kind of passport do the loyalists hold? That's a, no, that's a very good question. They have a British passport, but they have the right to an Irish passport also, if they wish. And they can vote in the Irish elections. Uh, well, see, Northern Ireland has a different government. They have a two-party government. Well, they have they have the DUP, mm -hmm. which is loyalist, and they have Sinn Féin, which oh, so is the, even, nationalist, even which is Within Irish. the government, they're still split yeah and they, they really just like don't like each other they're polarized oh wow so that's the problem it's polarization but i think it's interesting if we're looking at what has been happening in the last week okay it's mostly literal children that are on the streets like some of the people that were arrested were 13 14 wow. mostly boys so these were people that were born fuck, like a good few years after the good friday agreement right yeah. so like i was listening to one reporter and they're like I don't think that they're throwing bricks at policemen and setting buses on fire because of trading problems. The problem is that these people, like you have to remember that a lot of, say, the working class areas, that's where it's most divided. Like people are born into loyalist families. They grow up just hearing about mostly like British nationalism. They they glorify like the, par the paramilitaries that came before them that engaged in fighting against the Irish Catholics. So they feel like, being British is such a big part of their identity. And now they feel like the British government is just completely ne neglecting them. And they're also, they're living on an island where everyone else just doesn't like them, you know? So do you think that this is also an issue of like upbringing, that their families really just sort of foster this, these sort yeah, of like discussions? Yeah, that's such a big part of it. But there is also a big problem. I see, again, I'm not from there. So there's so many nuances to this where they say, a lot of people from loyalist communities aren't, there's a problem with education. I see. They're being left behind in terms of higher level education. I don't know the statistics myself, but I do think people from more Catholic families are now more likely to go on to higher level education. And are is, they wealthier, the Catholic families? Um, It's actually funny because during the say 60s and 70s, the way that loyalists feel now is very similar to the way that Catholics felt because there were laws in place that you know, it was a lot harder for Catholics to receive a good education. So they would have traditionally been a lot poorer. Now, in general, like, <laughs> it's hard to explain, but there's like, there's like a, a big middle ground, basically, of people that no longer care if they're Catholic or Protestant. Mm -hmm. But I do think that there is a strong evidence of loyalist families feeling like they're being left behind. Right. And so what what are what's happening with these protests? Because I, you mentioned that they're throwing bricks and setting police yeah, cars on fire. But so, what else is happening? Um, so far, it has been mainly them harming the police. OK, so they feel like I guess the police are representing the government and they feel like the government are ignoring them. And also, you do have to remember, like a lot of them are teenage boys. So they're yeah. 
they feel frustrated. They're being locked up. There's nowhere they can go. They're really just taking out their frustrations on anyone. I guess the police are the ones that are coming with them with big water cannons and spraying it at them. Yeah, so that's what Oh, it's gotten doing. to that extent. Yeah, and the reason why it's such a big issue is because like it's such a sensitive subject in northern ireland like even like in the rest of ireland it is like i never thought that i would see like pictures of this like in my lifetime again you know like they set an actual double-decker bus on fire oh wow are they arresting these kids yeah yeah they're arresting them yeah i I mean i'm not sure what the protocol is if you arrest like a 13 year old but (laughs) (laughs) but but do you think that part of this is as a result of social media is do you think there's like a big social media presence for the loyalists and like these children do you mean like they're do you think do you mean they're kind of forming a group on social media? yeah something something of that sort Um, that's a good question i didn't really think about that i mean i guess it could easily be that way like what some people are saying is yes these are mostly teenagers but at the same time it could be that there are more sinister things at play where Power, actual paramilitary loyalist groups, so terrorist associations, could be sort of brainwashing them. Like recruiting in a, in yeah, a sense. Yeah, recruiting them. It's like similar to Mozambique. Really. Right. So that could be happening. And they could, I'm sure, easily be doing that through social media. It's actually a phenomenon now with COVID-19. People are spending time at home and they're becoming radicalized. radicalized. <laughs> there, we set it together, yeah. But it's so, it's such a, I don't know, I'm interested to see how this is going to develop. And it is quite scary it really is and in a way I almost have sympathy for some of these like young teenage loyalist boys because they just feel completely ignored and like even at the moment I mean I don't know for sure but I'm pretty sure the UK media as most British people are only talking about Prince Philip dying they're not talking about the fact that the war might return in Northern Ireland do you you think it will get to that level (sighs) I don't know I mean the thing is the vast the majority of people in northern ireland they've moved past that they've said themselves they're like there's more important things to be talking about people no longer it used to be a standard thing back then that you would meet someone the first thing you would say is are you catholic or protestant or put it on your tinder bio like literally like there's tinder back then that would be it like it was so segregated now the segregation is definitely still there there's still catholic neighborhoods there's still protestant neighborhoods but there is a very big growing middle that just want peace you know yeah so i i i don't think so but i think it's more so i don't think it's just stupid brexit i think they need to look at the young people that they're neglecting yeah definitely and hopefully things will open back up again and it might actually calm down when life sort of yeah yeah i hope so because it's like some like there was this uh, expert guy who was like uh, he was a reporter like all through the troubles and he said to be honest he felt like the fighting and the hatred has never really gone away. It's just been simmering underneath. Mm, in a bubbling lot of communities. up to the surface. Yeah, I know. So it's, I mean, I'm interested in how it's going to go. They actually did say that um, because of the death of Prince Philip, that the loyalist riots may stop because, again, they see themselves as British. So they're pro-monarchy. Ah, so it might be out like of as respect. A, out of respect. Yeah. That'll be really interesting. Yeah, wow, I didn't. I really didn't know about this. I, I'm glad you told me. I, did, I mean, that's only like scratching the surface. Wow. But it, yeah, no, definitely like read up on it if you can. It's also be interested to see like what happens with the Good Friday Agreement. Yeah, <laughs> and and you also mentioned earlier about something happening in the Dutch museums. Oh right, yeah. So we can finish off with that. Sorry, that went off for so long (laughs) no but i'm so interested in this now yeah so in the basically i'll give you a short little spiel about this um there's these things called the 
benign benign bronzes, which is from an old Nigerian empire, the benign kingdom. I hope I'm saying that correctly. And they have these beautiful bronzes. And that's, it's kind of, it's portraying like little statues, little war figures. And they're kind of all over Europe because Nigeria was invaded so many different times. And first off, it was from the British. But now in Dutch museums, there are about 100 items from this collection. And they're going to give them back to That's Nigeria? That's the thing. So Nigeria wants them back. And what the Dutch government has done recently is they have created this new criteria that museums must follow in terms of colonial artifacts. And the thing is, because the Netherlands like was a colonial power, it's basically like if um, Indonesia or Suriname is asking for colonial artifa- artifacts back, they have to give them to them unconditionally. However, if it's somewhere like Nigeria, because Nigeria was ruled by a different European power, they don't have to give them back. It's conditionally, basically. Oh, that's so interesting. So they have to sort it out, I think, between themselves. You know, I kind of, I can respect that, though, that the Dutch government is actually putting forward such yeah. an initiative. Yeah, yeah, of course, because, I mean, in a sense, of course, like, if it was stolen, you know, you got to give it back. Right. At the same time, I do think it's good if the two countries can have a dialogue together, because I think it is important for Europeans to see African art, because I think we were kind of brainwashed this idea that you don't hear a lot about art from Africa. Like I think it kind of goes along with this post-colonial idea where they might say like, oh, well, you know, they're not able to create art. Yeah, we had the Renaissance. We had the Renaissance, which isn't true at all. Like that's just one tiny part of history. So I do think it's really important that we have some artifacts like that, but it should, of course, I think be up for, it should be from the origin country's perspective. You know, they should decide what they have and what they don't have. It all goes down to communication, really. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. So yeah, so it'll be interesting. Like maybe by the time museums open up, <laughs> whenever half the that collection will be, will be gone. Oh, yeah, the museums are just empty. <laughs> yeah, so that was big week of news. <laughs> big week of news, and we'll see what other what other updates come out of it. Thank yes, you. Yes, thank you very much. <laughs>